Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. On this week's podcast, two of Michigan's newest legislative leaders, House Majority Floor Leader-elect Abraham Ayash and incoming Senate Appropriations Committee Chair Sarah Anthony, talk in separate interviews about how they envision operating in their new positions and what they see the new Democratic legislative majority looking like in the coming session. You've seen him on Twitter. In this edition, Umish Voter talks about how he took on political analysis as a hobby as he works to become a doctor. He also addresses the future of Twitter as an influential social media platform. Now, host Kyle Malin is joined by Samantha Schreiber, Barbara Ballinger, and Danielle James. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. Well, Samantha Schreiber and Barbara Bellinger is with us right now. Danielle James will be joining us a little later in the podcast. But first, we wanted to jump off uh, to talk with somebody that is very familiar in the land of Twitter and in particularly in political circles. Uh, it goes by the Twitter handle, you Mish Voter, and he's joining us now on the podcast. Hello, how are you? Hi, everyone. Um so, yep, this is the person who runs the Umich Voter account. Um, but my name is Kay. Uh, last name's Lamba. Uh, I was a University of Michigan student uh, up until last year, and I just graduated. So, Well, congratulations. So what do you do now, then? Uh, I am currently in first year of medical school. So you're in med school, but your your knowledge and um, uh, your your access to stuff that is political is quite frankly been amazing <laughs> how do how do you how do you have time to to dabble into all the politics you do while being in med school uh bad time management honestly but yeah making it making it work so far uh let's see how that goes in the future but it's just um it's how i like take breaks it's how i um keep myself going um it's tough it's it's, it's challenging at times sometimes it involves sacrificing sleep but it, it gets me going, so that's 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 how we're rolling. So tell us, Kay, how you got involved in, how you got interested in politics, because some of the things that I see that you've done uh, are really mm -hmm. remarkable. I mean, the, your color-coded map of the state, for instance, digging deep into the kind of the the uh, the nuts and bolts of um, some of these races. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did you how did you get interested in this? Uh, I can trace it all the way back to. Um, We'll go to like 2016 presidential primaries, I think. Um, that's where uh, I was in my U.S. government class. Um, they were telling us about debates and stuff. Um, started listening in. Um, I realized I was more tuned when the primaries started rolling in. I thought I was more tuned into the the numbers part of stuff in, instead of the policies and all the politic, political stuff. So um, I was just looking at all the data the numbers that came in for that election and then the general election and then i don't know it just slowly snowballed itself into interests um there's a lot of wikipedia and google and just being curious about everything looking everything up and then here we are just five or six years later just kind of um build up a just a lot of knowledge about the state and uh politics and elections and data I really like when you tweet about kind of some what if future scenarios. Um, I saw that you right. recently did a what if um, Whitmer versus Ron DeSantis presidential race. Yeah. And I think you've also done a, um, I think it was like a gift that you had put up that was like a what if like Democratic US Senate candidate if Debbie Stabenow were to retire. Yep. Oh, it's just, it's just things that come to my, my mind and, um, it's it's to see what people out there think it's kind of fun yeah that's and where i kind of have fun with it um with the count for sure i think what i find so interesting about what you do is that you've really kind of created this place for conversation and also right. something that you know kind of waters down 
political conversations so they don't seem so far away from the everyday person, you know, that anyone can be a political thinker. Uh, obviously here at MERS, you know, we're kind of paid to be political thinkers, to cover exactly. things and to stay very focused. But mm -hmm. you've allowed this for, you know, the everyday Twitter user. And what's one thing that you've noticed with this kind of community that you've created? I've noticed a lot of people, just like you said, who um, don't necessarily weren't used to um, dealing with political data, just like average mom, average dad out there, just like on their Twitter account, just after work, engaging and like um, learning something. And they, they'll like, they'll be embarrassed to ask questions. I'm like, no, go ahead, ask, ask a question. Like, I'll explain it to you. Or like, they'll DM me and like, I'll like, they'll be like, oh, what does is, what is a presidential trend mean? Or like, what does a trend between 2016 and 2020 mean? So I'll just like try to explain it to them. Um, because frankly, we use a lot of terms that people don't understand. So it's it's nice um, having to have so many people join in on that. And what's been kind of your favorite memory throughout this whole process of leading this Twitter account? Uh, favorite memory, I would say, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and say two things. Um, first first one is how that account got viral. It started with Florida because I I'm a Florida resident that's where my parents are from that's where I went to high school um and I that's how the account got kind of viral because I was analyzing Florida early voting numbers in 2020 so that was like the moment the spotlight um how I went from like 3,000 followers to like 30,000 like in one day <laughs> so that was kind of crazy uh and then I say my favorite uh, other favorite moment was analyzing the Michigan results this year it's just because I had all this knowledge that I was just ready to use and it was it was fun, like, and I have a lot of like friends in the Michigan political circle who are helping me, and just like calling the races and calling the Michigan State House and Senate till six a.m. was pretty fun. Well, speaking of that, you called the governor's race at nine thirty in the morning. I I don't think we got around to it until midnight. I don't think we were comfortable until then. What what did you see that that made you comfortable that yeah this baby's over? Uh, so I had, I knew Oakland County dropped its results on its website pretty early. So um, that's something I was looking, kind of just refreshing. Um, once it got pulled up, they had some uh, early voting numbers. I'm like, okay, we need to wait for election numbers, right? Because you never get the full picture if you look at one particular um, category of how votes are cast. So I waited for that. Um, we got the election day numbers out of like, Oakland County suburbs. Okay, we get numbers. We have, we have completed numbers from like municipalities, right? Uh, and I'm like, okay, I have numbers for that from 2018. I have numbers for that from 2020. What's happening in 2022? I see a trend. It's like big shift in the Oakland County excerpts, not even the suburbs, the excerpts. Um, for people who live in Metro Detroit, that's uh, Orient Township, uh, Commerce, um, even Holly, like far up um, there. And then I got some Kent County numbers and then I got some numbers out in the rurals and I thought everything was consistent with 2018 or even like a shift from 2018 towards the Democrats. So I thought that was I thought that was enough. We got like numbers from like educated suburbs, suburbs that are like more like rural suburbs that are or, or excerpts that are more rural. And then we got some rural areas and we got some city. And I thought like the whole picture was I was very confident at that point. I still waited for like two people to like agree with my like call. So I didn't want to like completely just put it out there. So, but yeah, I was ready by 9.30. Um, that's when we had poll closings from um, all 83 counties and yeah. And you beat everybody on that. Like all the networks, all the news agencies. I don't, you were the first person to call that, weren't you? It seems so, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, sometimes... I think precaution is is good. So I'm I'm not I'm not huge about like you know like the race to beat everyone. Like that's not the big priority. But internally, like that was that was I had confidence when like you're beating 2018 numbers. She already won by 10 points at time. So that was good enough for me. A little bit tangenty, but I was wondering mm -hmm. if you'd ever considered a career change because you're talking about things that make a great reporter, which is being curious really being into data, the minutia mm -hmm. of things. Um, it, it's interesting from an MD student to being interested in right. uh, something that's very politically reporting. Yeah. Um, now I think about that. And um, I don't want to ever say never because 
people do have life changes. People do have career changes. It's very normal. But currently, I am enrolled in a in a, in a course for med school, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now. But I don't know if 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 there is ever a future um, maneuver like it could happen. I, I I don't I don't like to completely uh, close all paths, but I'm excited for whatever's coming for me in the future, whether it's as a med student or if it's a career change. Well, you're definitely going to make more money doing the career path that you're following now. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, certainly this is a pretty fun profession. I, I it want, is. I, I wanted to get your take on, on what's going on with Twitter right now because obviously you're extremely popular on Twitter. You've got, what, over 40? Are you at 44,000 uh, followers right now? Um, but obviously Twitter is going through a bit of a change and, and you're already, it looks like you're already making some precautions in case, uh, the, uh, the social media platform, uh, implodes, if you will. Yep. And that would be quite an event if that does happen. Cause Twitter's just been the center of news, uh, like very quick, um, information, bits of information being processed very fast, um, so yeah, that would be quite the change. And I have taken some precautions and I made an Instagram account. I've made a Mastodon account. I don't even know what that is yet, but I did make that account. And then uh, I made a Reddit. Um, so just three things. I don't know if it'll, Twitter will like completely shut down. Who knows? Um, that's a Elon Musk thing that we'll all have to wait and watch and see how that goes. Um, but yeah, just if, if that does happen, I'm trying to have people who are really interested in this stuff. They message me and be like, please give me your email. Give me something because this stuff is what keeps me going. And it's it's what keeps me going. So I would definitely want to keep continuing. Awesome. I have definitely a couple questions for you on this. I was looking through. And um, so which of these alternative platforms so far have you seen the most traction on or which one do you think? has the most uh, potential for like making up for Twitter if it, mm -hmm. if it does like. Right. Uh, right. And there's pros and cons to all these platforms. Um, I would personally say Instagram, I see is personally getting most traction because there are like verified people. Um, so I have like some like politicians in the state, some state representatives and state senators are slowly starting to like, follow me and then because there there is verification there and it's established platform that is very um it's it's worked out its kinks over the course of time so it's very fast it's very efficient the interface is great um the only thing is you can't really post information without posting pictures um so i'll have to be creative with that um there are stories where i can put texts um but it's something i'm gonna have to uh, work with if that twitter does shut down um, Mastodon, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing correctly. One second. Um, is the other alternative, it's basically like a Twitter, but it's pretty slow, I would say. It's not something that like, I don't think the average, um, if unless you're like savvy, would be able to figure that out because it is slow. It is something that's a little bit different that people are not used to. And I read it. I'd say that's a pretty young leaning demographic it's hard to see um i would say instagram is probably the most um best social media app for that for um what i think i might have to do what's your thoughts on what's going on with twitter do you have any thoughts on what elon musk is doing and letting donald trump back in and uh just people being repulsed by the idea that there aren't going to there isn't kind of the safeguards that there were before um not to get too much but my personal political opinion would be yes, I, I agree. Uh, I don't think it's the right move. Um, I don't like what happened after the 2020 election with the spreading lies because people do buy into it. And people do get angry. Um, whether that's the intention or not to incite violence, it's it's it, that's what it does. So I don't I don't I don't think it's a good move. Um, that's my personal political opinion. And I don't I don't like Elon Musk just personally like it's it feels like a game to him because he he's a richest man, right? So like he. I don't know. I, I I would prefer if he focused a little bit on the stability of the app rather than all these political games. You talked a bit about being stretched already with your Twitter and political um, posts and the uh, medical school, but mm -hmm. 
is there a, like, are you sharing the same content across the platforms? Like, or are you having to rewrite or redo um, for each platform? Have you found a way mm-hmm. to sort of manage multiple platforms efficiently? Oh, so the Reddit, the Mastodon, and Instagram, right? Is that what yes. you meant? Yes. Uh, so that is, these are more like, because Twitter's still working. Um, I haven't, I've made the accounts. I wanted people to follow it just in case, you know, the lights go out. That's where we can take take over. Um, and I'm slowly going to promote these accounts more. Um, I'm Instagram is probably the one I can, because I do use Instagram, like on uh, my personal life. So that's the one that's going to be the easiest to shift to. Um, the other ones are going to take a little bit of time and see how things go, a little bit of experimentation. But I haven't been as active on these accounts just because, or some accounts not even active at all, just because it is more like a backup. Twitter is perfect for what I do. So, so far, so good. It's working three days in, right? Because you do have a front row seat when it comes to how people are reacting to politics, how would you describe Mm -hmm. the current state of political personal stability or, you know, how people are just treating each other when it comes to these topics? I think there is a lot of heat and I'm going to be honest, like sometimes I I have my own personal politics. I really, really appreciate all the people who do follow me because there's this data stuff that like is very, very fun and very exciting and very um and i get people from all ends of the political spectrum where we like i don't agree with you politically but the analyzing you do or like the data um, conversations you create are really really fun so they they write they write it out but i do have my personal political opinions so i do engage a lot sometimes i'll poke fun at like gop candidates um i i really i should stop doing that um as much um as the account gets bigger but yeah i, th- I think as long as we keep it like lighthearted and like nothing personal um we can maintain, like, we can have fun with the political dialogue as long as it doesn't get dangerous, as long as you're not, like, personally, like, stalking someone or, like, doxing someone. Like, I'm okay with a little bit of political fun as long as it stays safe. Because it is how people react in everyday life. They, they talk about politics and they fight. So I just don't want Twitter to be a platform where, like, everyone's anonymous and they're causing harm to each other. So as long as it stays fun and, like, just safe. Well, very good. Well, thank you for joining us here. That's all the time that we have today. This has been you, Mish Voter, been joining us uh, for this segment of the podcast. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Joining us now on the podcast is Representative Abraham Ayash. He is going to be the House Majority Floor Leader when uh, session kicks back into session in January. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I, have you gotten used to that yet? House Majority Floor Leader elect. Uh, it's certainly a mouthful, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we are excited for the opportunity and, and grateful for the trust that my colleagues have put in me. Uh, tell us how we got how you got in this position. How did this happen? Well, there's a thing called an election, uh, and you run, and then your colleagues vote for you. No, I'm, I'm teasing. You know, I, I was, I, 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 you know, I, I, I obviously serve right now as an assistant minority floor leader to uh, Representative Robbie, and sort of just seeing the inner workings and, and giving getting some understanding of how this uh, plays out is actually helpful, uh, and then. Fun fact, the last majority floor leader we had on the Democratic side uh, was Kathy Anger, who was my city manager here in Hamtramck up until this past August. So this is something that her and I had discussed. And, uh, you know, it's just something that I feel like I can do a good job at. And I'm excited to help set the agenda with with my colleagues and grateful that I was able to get overwhelming support uh, in, in caucus last week. Real quickly, I'm a big fan of uh, Kathy Anger, and uh, I know she's over at the Department of Ag right now working with another former rep, uh, Gary McDowell. Well, what advice did she give you about this post? Well, uh, she says this is the best job in, in majority, that uh, it is the best office. I actually have never been in the majority floor leader's office, but uh, and she said that it's probably the one that allows you to engage with, with your colleagues in uh, very personal ways, uh, which 
makes the job that much more fun getting to know the people that you're working with and getting a better understanding of who um, the stakeholders in the Lansing circuit are. Yeah. And you, you know, that caucus meeting when you were choosing your position and speaker Tate, you know, that went for almost three hours. Could you talk to us about some of your feelings going into that process and what it was like? Yeah, look, um, I I felt like I put in the work and I I built the relationships with the incoming class and also the, the returning members. And it was just a matter of demonstrating my desire and, and capacity to lead, and and that showed with the with the results. So, you know, it, it was things went the way I anticipated, rather. So, my question would be: What three words would you use to describe the incoming House Democratic majority, and why do you choose those three words? Uh, driven, committed, and collaborative. I think that particular. I mean, people don't realize this. Literally, fifty percent of this new majority caucus is brand new. There's twenty eight incumbents and there's twenty eight incoming members, uh, which I think provides a very unique opportunity for us to learn. You know, obviously for the incumbents, none of us have served in a in a majority, but we know the pain of being in a minority at times. And for the uh, incoming members, this is all entirely new to them. So. With that coupled with the term limit change, I think there is a long-term focus in terms of how can we build an, an, an agenda and also bring back a level of trust to state government that we know has been lacking under uh, the Republican leadership. Obviously, the the disturbing elements around uh, former Speaker Chatfield is one that, that comes to mind, but we have an opportunity now to not sprint in terms of how we govern. We can sort of set the pace. And for some members, there's an opportunity to serve over a decade uh, in the legislature, which allows them to really tackle issues a lot more thoughtfully uh, in a deeper sense and um, engage in ways that they may not have the opportunity with because, you know, it's like you learn the job the first year, then you get reelected, you fight for your second term in your, in your, or your third term in your second year, and then you're on the way out in your third term. That's no longer the case. Um, and I think that there's a lot of folks that are, are driven, recognizing that there's 40 years of great policy that has been uh, blunted by a Republican majority in, in the Senate in particular. And this is the first trifecta, uh, in, you know, or the, only the third trifecta in 100 years. So we want to keep it. I know that history shows that when we've had a trifecta in years past, it usually lasts for two years. I can tell you that the work that we will put in to keep this majority for many terms to come is already there. Uh, we have a group of, of incoming members and incumbents that are ready for that. Um, and there's a sense of collaboration where we will call each other. Uh, we, we have great ideas. We sort of lean in, sort of no one's trying to jump on top of the other person. Obviously, there's an excitement to say, oh, my God, 12 years, the Democrats in the House haven't had the, the gavel. Now we want to usher in all this good legislation that we've worked on for the last 12 years, well, there's a sense of let's actually do this together. You know, there's enough success for all of us to be able to push out to show working families across the state that we are a majority that governs and delivers for working people across the state. So I remember the last time that the Democrats took control of the House back in 2007, and uh, that 2005-2006 session, I thought the Republicans... Uh, we're a little, um, oh, I don't know what would be the right word on this, but uh, uh, they, they really exerted their majority. How about we put it that way? And so that when the Democrats took the gavel that next session, uh, there was a strong sense of retribution. And uh, the, uh, the Democrats gave back what they got real good. Do you sense that with this caucus? Do you, do you feel like there's going to be some, given the Republicans back what they gave to you, uh, when they were in majority? Look, uh, to be quite honest, Kyle, we are focused on giving back to, to the people of, of Michigan. Uh, we know that we've worked on all these issues. We've drafted great policies over the last several years, and it has fell on deaf ears with a Republican majority. Uh, and, you know, you just look at literally this year. Uh, we haven't had any real session since we passed the budget back in, in July, which is quite... In, an embarrassment, and I would say even a dereliction of duty, 
we are ready to do the work and we are less concerned about quote unquote punishing or giving retribution or, or to the Republicans, but more so we have an opportunity to set an agenda and actually deliver that agenda for the working people across the state, for our seniors, uh, for our clean air and, and clean water across this magnificent two peninsula state. So we, we have a lot to do and, and we're not going to be distracted by, by petty partisanship, but we're not also going to fall into this trap of placating anyone. We have work to do and we welcome uh, our Republican colleagues to extend that hand and get to work. We are committed to work with anybody to get the things that are necessary for Michigan done. You know, we have to make sure that Michigan will be economically stable um, as, as we see this shifting of, of, of the global economy. We have to make sure that our infrastructure is there and that we are investing in all the opportunities that we, we could get with the Inflation Reduction Act, particularly with the climate investment. Like we have a chance to really focus on these things. But then there are looming issues that we have seen Republican neglect for decades. You look at public education. You look at the way we've treated uh, our, our working men and women. And you look at the way we have not focused on the basic essentials like childcare, like making sure there's access to reliable broadband, that our farmers have safe environments to be able to grow and, 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 and sell the crops and the produce that, that, that they would like. All of these things are important. and All these things require us to, to govern in a serious, thoughtful manner. And we are excited for that. You talk a lot about some of the you know, changes to term limits, some of the priorities that you really want to advance it. It all sounds very exciting. What would you say personally are you most excited about? What's the priority you're most looking forward to advancing this upcoming session? You know, uh, it's refreshing not to be in a rush. You know, I, I don't feel like I'm on the way out. Uh, I, I personally would have liked to see a different format with this term limit and financial disclosure reform, but the voters decided and, and we are going to accept the will of, of the voters. But, you know, I think it's helpful to not feel like, all right, I'm on my way out. I got to figure out what's what's going to be my my last impact and things of that nature. <clears throat> Particularly the things that, that interest me is, you know, I'm excited to look at how can we navigate an, an economy that protects workers in a gig economy. I think that's something that has been overlooked. And as somebody who's uh, younger, I, I would like to see uh, what our state is doing to invest in attracting more people to stay in Michigan. Um, so I think there needs to be a serious conversation about what public transit looks like and the future of mobility, right? Uh, EVs are the future of vehicles, but they're not necessarily the, the future of all transportation. Um, so I think that's something that, that we need to have a, a broader look at. Um, obviously, for me, a passion issue for myself. You know, I grew up smelling an incinerator burning Canadian garbage walking to school. I think we, we really need to take a look at uh, Michigan's permitting processes and, and how we can ensure that uh, communities like mine here in Detroit and Hamtramck are not getting the brunt of all of this pollution and that we are protecting the families and the children and the seniors in these places uh, from uh, getting sick, you know, high asthma rates and and higher likelihood of, of cancer, things of that nature, those are all a result of bad policy decisions. And the hopeful thing is these were very much man-made issues. And we have a very robust group of men and women in the Democratic majority to be able to help undo some of these problems. So those are sort of some of the issues for me. Obviously, we see a lot of the problems around the issues with our victims of, of the auto no-fault crisis. You know, we have folks that need uh, the treatment, we have to make sure that we find a way to, to, to tackle that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to collaborating with the, my 55 other colleagues in the House and my 20 Democratic colleagues in the Senate, as well as the governor, to see what else we can do to push a robust agenda. Because we have two years, right? I mean, we will obviously do everything we can, and we feel very good about keeping this majority beyond one term in the 103rd and 104th legislature. But we need to make sure that we can show Michiganders that when they put their trust in the Democratic majority, that Democratic majority delivers. 
No, and then when you look at like the committee process and the process of constructing legislation and policy, uh, you know, what House committee do you think is going to look the most different under Democratic control? Uh, you know, we are, we have committee on committees, obviously led by the future approach chair and Representative Angela Whitwer, um, and, and, and they're being very intentional about making sure that uh, we are taking in the views of, of all of our colleagues and that uh, people's skill sets are leveraged in, in some of these spaces. I think a conversation that is important that we will probably see some emphasis on as we think about uh, trust in government. You know, I would probably say it's, it's at an all-time low, particularly in state government here in Michigan. Uh, we will definitely look at ways of building a mechanism that will hold this legislature accountable to the public. Um, but that's certainly something that we are exploring. And um, I think it's going to be critical uh, that we show not only are we going to make this into a formal process, but we are showing them that this will be an open, transparent process so that we can be scrutinized to the 10th to the nth degree, uh, figuring out how we can build the trust with people and how we can guarantee that this is not going to be a partisan goose chase, but it is something that recognizes the fidelity of, of the institution and that we have to look at the problems that have plagued this institution over the last several years, that we address it in a way that is accountable to the, the people, transparent to the public, and uh, respects all of the rules and, uh, that, and the norms that this institution once had. Representative, as the majority floor leader, how do you envision choosing which bills make the calendar on a given day? Uh, you know, I'll be collaborating with <clears throat> the speaker-elect. Uh, you know, Joe, Joe Tate and I have had great conversations. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like I talk to him more than I talk to my mother at, at this point. So we are, we are working very closely to figure out how we want to approach that. And I, I think it depends, right? It's, we want to make sure that we're collaborating with, with the Senate. Now that we have two working majorities, <clears throat> we intend to collaborate uh, with, with one another to make sure that we are moving an agenda and sort of operating as a unit uh, and recognizing that, you know, we are two co-equal parts of a branch of government. And, but we think that things are more effective when we can collaborate across the board uh, because we, all, we have shared priorities. Uh, the Senate majority and the House majority have a commitment to the things that uh, people have been begging for for three years. And I think that's going to be a huge part of that. Uh, but it's also recognizing the conversation with my colleagues. You know, I made a commitment that we can get 56 bills in 100 days, one for each of my colleagues in, in the Democratic majority. So we're going to try to usher that in on the condition that they will swiftly uh, and, and thoughtfully move through the committee process with their legislation. So... We're still building the well-oiled machine, but I could tell you we have plenty of oil to get it going. This is partly just for, you know, my own curiosity as someone who's newer to the Capitol Press Corps. But, you know, what's your timeline? When do you think you'll have more of these committee chair positions or, you know, committee assignments in general figured out? Uh, look, we we intend to start as soon as possible. You know, we have a goal of, of getting these rolled out and functioning sometime in, in, in January. Um, obviously, with looking at possibly restructuring some of the committees, uh, you know, I will defer to, to Speaker-elect Tate on, on, on this point, but I would say that we have a goal to start almost as soon as possible. In opening day, January 11th, we would like to see some of that uh, going shortly after. So it sounds like we've got uh, some busy some busy days uh, that, that are going to come up here. Uh, we're not going to see, um, I'm sure, in uh, February, a lot of two-bill session days, are we? No, and, and you will not be seeing surprise canceled uh, sessions. So I, I think that all, all 56 members in the House majority know uh, the impetus of this moment and, and the urgency of getting work done. But you know, we will be deliberate and thoughtful as we approach this. This is not just a rush to just yank, pump out public acts, but really thinking about how do we address some of these problems? And the unfortunate thing is there have been a lot of problems that have lingered with the past Republican majorities that uh, the House Democrats are ready to move forward with. Perfect. And, you know, one more question for me. 
um, kind of, you know, ending it on a positive and, you know, historic note, you are the highest ranking Muslim to serve in the Michigan legislature with this position. You know, could you tell us a little bit about that, how that felt even going, coming out of caucus and, you know, knowing that? Yeah, you know, it was, it was uh, quite a moment. You know, I, I thought about the, the Muslim re- re- representatives that came in before me, Rashida Tlaib and, and Abdullah Hamoud. And, uh, you know, I know that they at some point looked at the opportunity to, to serve in house leadership and to be the first Muslim to serve in house leadership ever, I think is, is, was quite a feat, but you know, this is not something that I walked in with. And, you know, we had folks that laid the groundwork, people like Abdullah and Rashida in their times in, in, in the state house. I, I know that being a first making history is something quite remarkable, but I would like the legacy of the first to be one of the best. So I think that's going to be one of my focuses is how can I make sure that I'm going to be one of the best majority floor leaders we've ever had? And I will say Ben Frederick has done a heck of a job uh, in in his role so far. So I'm taking notes from him. You know, he's been very gracious since uh, my election, but by my colleagues. And my hope is that we'll be able to hit the ground running. And we are excited for the opportunity. Abraham Ayash, he's going to be the... House Majority Floor Leader coming in in the 23-24 session. Appreciate you taking some time and talking with us here in the podcast. here currently with State Rep. Sarah Anthony, also Senator-elect Anthony, who will be serving as Senate Appropriations Chair starting in 2023. Uh, Hello, Sarah Anthony. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing great. So obviously, Senate Appropriations Chair, that's a huge deal. Uh, You know, what are you kind of most excited about with taking on this role, especially as the first Black woman to have this position? Honestly, if you were to tell me after graduating from undergrad at Central Michigan as a 22-year-old, starting off in the legislature, working for former state rep Joan Bauer and staffing her um, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, like literally sitting in the back of a probes while George Cushenberry had long-winded and amazingly animated stories. Uh, If you were to tell that 22-year-old me, that I would be like serving as Senate approach chair, I would have told you you're absolutely insane. Uh, there's no way that I ever dreamed of even serving in the legislature in any capacity, let alone um, chairing this powerful committee. Um, so I'm just really excited. And it's pretty intimidating as well. Uh, many folks aren't um, honest about how intimidating these types of jobs can be but I also conquer imposter syndrome every day and know that whether it's my experience on the appropriations committee, like as a member, but also as a staffer, that I've got this. I, I know what to do. And I, I know um, that I'm qualified for the moment. So I'm, I'm excited. And it also feels like a breath of fresh air knowing that we'll be in the majority in both the House and the Senate and we'll, be ha- and we'll have a governor that shares many of the same priorities. So in many ways, it feels like the best time to be in this position. So I'm I'm really excited. Yeah, and then I specifically was doing a story on the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act on the federal level. And I know that I believe it's by the end of 2026, Michigan will have received more than $10 billion just from that one federal act alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what's it like to know that we're, we're going to be handling still so much leftover federal money and leftover surplus revenue. I, I've been trying to reflect on whether it is more of a blessing to have additional financial resources or um, does it mean we'll fight differently? Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure yet, but what I do know is that people have spoken and they've said that we need these investments to make some transformative lifelong changes, right? Um, now this doesn't mean that we need to be irresponsible, uh, but I think it's a time to really invest. Uh, and I think people are expecting us to do that. We saw that even in these, uh, these elections, right? The fact that, uh, this was supposed to be a really bad year for Democrats 
And I think folks kind of shunned extremism and they sent Democrats to the Capitol with a mandate, which is to invest in Michiganders. So I'm excited about this, the, these additional federal dollars. So. All right. So I've got a couple parts. Uh, I, I got two questions here. First of all, you mentioned George Cushenberry. So I mm-hmm. have to ask, are you going to bring back co- or uh, the comment commentary section of the appropriations meeting? Uh, you'll have to see. Oh you'll have gosh. to see. But I will tell you, I mean, that by far uh, is one of my strongest memories as a staffer was listening to Cush talk about driving up north and having conversations with Jennifer Granholm and his time uh, on farms across the state of Michigan. There's nothing like it. So, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Cause I can't wait to hear your comment. And, and I love how he transitioned too. he would, we would be just in the middle of, of actually doing business. And he said, we're going to change the comment. We're going to the commentary section of the agenda. <laughs> and you just go off. <laughs> I know it. I know it. But uh, and, and again, he was masterful, right? He was, he a, was. a Democrat from Detroit who could also resonate with some of our rural parts of our state and was able to connect to members from all walks of life. And I, I really admired his leadership. All right. And so as far as tax cuts, is there a particular type of tax cut that you like? Everything's on the table, right? You know, I, Sam mentioned earlier that I'm coming in as the first Black woman to serve in this capacity. And I think that whether it's the decreased number of African Americans in the legislature um, or just the fact that I approach everything with an equity lens, we have to look at our tax structure in the same way. And we can't uh, approach this work and this surplus and all of these dollars and leave communities behind. And so I think we need to look at these things with an equity lens and and work with, again, the governor and our counterparts in the House to see what is fair um, for Michiganders who really are hurting right now and need some relief. I asked this of um, Representative Ayash in the House, but I'm curious to hear it from you, too, in the Senate side. What is the, the thing you're most excited about ahead of taking majority? What is the priority that you are most looking forward to advance? So... Admittedly, and this is just me being somewhat vulnerable in this space, the last four years have been really, really hard um, serving as a legislator in the Capitol. Um, Extremism, uh, division, and not seeing really great ideas by my colleagues on, on the Democratic side. I mean, amazing transformative ideas never making it to the finish line simply because they were coming from our Democratic colleagues. So I'm excited to address things like mental health parity. Um, There's low hanging fruit here, right? I mean, things like child marriage, in which I've been the the primary champion on, um, addressing child care, human services, um, housing, food insecurity, the things that touch people's lives is what I'm really excited about. You know, I, I think that oftentimes we get so focused on making sure that the wealthy and well connected are taken care of. Um, that we lose sight of the people who line our streets. You know, I represent Lansing and there's, you know, many well-connected folks who go to our bars and our restaurants. And, but if you can't see, you know, the folks who are homeless or honestly need real help in between those meetings, I think we're missing the mark. So I'm just excited about making sure that our budgets really do reflect our morals um, I know that's like a kind of a squishy answer, but I'm just excited to get to work on human related issues that haven't been able to see the light of day because we haven't controlled either chamber. Now, and obviously a big day in the beginning of 2023 is when the governor's executive budget proposal comes out and, you know, covering it when it's Republicans in control of the legislature, it seems that Republicans get divided into two groups. You know, the good cops are like, no, we're going to consider everything on the table. There's a lot to think about. And then you kind of have more of the bad cops that are like, all this spending is outrageous. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So, you know, obviously being in the same party as the governor, you know, you're going to see this budget proposal, get excited. But how do you make sure that the conversation is still like, okay, we still need to look at this and we still need to go through the process? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a partnership, right? 
Um, and I think that that will be how we look at these conversations and negotiations. I think the governor's priorities have mirrored many of the things that Democrats in the House and the Senate and the Senate have been championing, but there will be some differences um, and also just prioritization. What do we do first? What do we do second? How much um, we invest in certain areas? So I do think that it will still be a real negotiation and a process that hopefully will just be a lot more civil um, and a lot more productive than what we've seen in the last couple of cycles. Now, and when you kind of think about, you know, the the spectrum of people's political ideologies and policy ambitions, uh, you know, obviously there are some people who ran as Senate Democrats and, you know, saying I'm more moderate, I'm more purple, and then you kind of have some more progressives. Uh, you know, what are some budget items do you think are going to be, you know, the hardest for Democrats to come together on, even just within their own party? You know, for me, I don't think that there'll be too much that divides our caucuses. It's going to be a matter of um, how robust and again, the prioritization, what comes first. We all ran on things that really matter to real people. So it's criminal justice reform. It's finally taking a look at how we're funding education in this state, um, how we are prioritizing higher education and workforce and training. Uh, revenue sharing, economic development. You know, I think I'm excited by uh, the fact that I've always been someone that's been very pro-economic development and a, and a friend of the business community. Too often Democrats aren't at the table in those discussions. So I'm just excited that, you know, regardless of whether folks lean more quote unquote progressive or more moderate, we're still Democrats. And I think that we've always had the working family um, at the top of our mind and the approach that we take and the speed is really what we're going to be debating, not um, if we're going to be standing up for those issues. It's just going to be yeah, how quickly and, and which and how much we're going to be investing. Representative, I wanted to pick your brain here on the Senate redistricting maps. You had mentioned that there will be fewer black members uh, in the legislature this coming session than there are now. And some of that uh, you have to probably concur is it has to do with the uh, maps that were drawn that connect every single piece of Detroit with some other place uh, in the suburbs. Uh, where is your head at with that? And how do you reconcile the fact that these maps did give the Democrats a, a better opportunity to take majority, and yet they did so um, with fewer members being black? So I've had lots of conversations, uh, not probably, not surprisingly, many black leaders across the state have reached out to me and have just said, look, we're going to need your voice. Um, and these are places that are even outside of Detroit, but have um, large populations of African-Americans. Um, I think that it is a frustrating time, um, but also given the majorities in the House and the Senate, we're going to have to lean on our non-African-American counterparts to lean in, to empower um, African-American leadership, even within their districts to, uh, to assure folks that their voices won't be watered down. It also puts more pressure, to be honest, on the remaining African-Americans. Folks like uh, Senator Santana, Senator Erica Geis in the Senate, um, our shoulders <laughs> are going to be a little heavier because of how many voices we're going to have to bring with us to these tables. Um, so I think that it's a, it's a new challenge for folks who have portions of Detroit, portions of majority Black districts to be very intentional um, about empowering Black leadership, whether it's through their staffing in their offices, making sure that they're providing real entree. Um, but there's nothing, it, it, there's an old saying uh, in organizing, nothing about us without us. And so I think that it can't just be about, um, you know, making decisions on behalf of Black communities. We need to be at the table. You know, I know this is something that would probably better be better tossed at a Republican, but with lame duck upcoming, there are a few packages that came from the House are sitting in the Senate that, you know, people are wondering, are they going to see movement? Is that something that, you know, in, with your experience in legislature, would you say that some of those, you know, healthcare reform packages, things like that, do you think that those are going to be addressed during lame duck? 
you know, uh, for the next few weeks, I'm still in the minority party. <laughs> and so oftentimes information isn't directly shared with me. But I think that, you know, if the Republicans have learned anything, it's that we need productive uh, government. We like, I think that people have spoken that they want the best ideas that are informed by priorities from people to make it across the finish line. And some of those ideas are still lingering um, and have the possibility of making it to the governor's desk during lame duck. So for some of those bright ideas, I hope the Republicans are taking a look and saying we can still do some good things between now and the end of the year. Um, in the meantime, I'm gonna be focused on studying up for this big job. Um, my secondary goal in life, besides making my parents proud, is really just to be like Curtis Hertel in heels in the majority, maybe with some curly hair. <laughs> uh, and you know, I've got a lot of studying to do, but there are some really good bills, including a few of my own, that um, I would love to see make it to the governor's desk. I would say, you know, my last question would be, and I apologize because this might require a much longer answer, uh, but when you look at former appropriation processes, you know, what has big, been the biggest downfall when it comes to promoting equity in a budget? So that is a big question. Um, and I will say that these last few budgets, they, they have been more people focused, right? When we look at our, our historic investments in education and human services, we have been making some headway there. But one of the things that I am really excited about is taking this process to the people directly. We often see interest groups flood the, the halls of the Capitol and they come with their list of asks. Um, but oftentimes real everyday people just don't have that same level of um, entry into uh, these processes. So a part of my role is to ensure that that's a little bit different that people have a direct line to, to make their voices heard. Well, thank you so much. Uh, current rep and Senator-elect uh, Sarah Anthony, uh, I hope you have a good rest of your week. And thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks to Representative Abraham Ayash for joining us earlier. Also, Representative Sarah Anthony, Senator-elect Sarah Anthony, uh, for joining us, and also the Umish voter who uh, started off the podcast. Danielle James, Samantha Schreiber, and Barbara Bellinger were uh, on this podcast. Thank you all for uh, helping out with the uh, very insightful questions. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos. And also thank you to our longtime sponsor, AT&T, for funding this and our other podcasts. Until next week, I'm Kyle Malin. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care.